Good morning. It's great to see you. If you've never met, my name is Jay. I'm a part of the team here. And um, I've actually been on vacation since early June. I'm back in the, I've been back in the office the last week and a half, but I haven't preached since like the end of May. And the only reason I share that with you, one, is to thank our elders who are so, um, they just care about our staff so much and, and give us little breaks as needed. So I'm so grateful for that. But also, I share that mostly for the sake of self-preservation. If this teaching is not good, I just haven't done it in a couple of months, so be kind and gracious. Okay, let's jump in. I want to show you a, a, a painting. This is a painting by a late, well, early to mid, actually, 20th century Belgian surrealist painter named René Magritte. It's a painting of a pipe. But at the bottom, does anybody read French? Anyone read French? Do you, can you read what that says? Do, what does it say? This is not a pipe. That's right. That's what that says. That line says, this is not a pipe. This is a painting by René Magritte. It is called The Treachery of Images. But most people call this painting, this is not a pipe. And René Magritte, when he painted this in 1929, he was already a pretty well-known painter. But this painting really put him on the map. Now, most of us are looking at this painting and we're kind of thinking like, yeah, it's cool, but really, that's a famous painting? Um, here's the deal. The, one of the reasons, amongst many reasons, one of the reasons why this painting really put René Magritte on the map was because Magritte was fond of using his art to provoke thinking amongst the masses. And he called this painting the treachery of images, and he wrote the line in French, this is not a pipe to provoke us as viewers. Because when we see this image, what do we think to ourselves? That's a pipe. And yet he, as the artist, is telling us, this is not a pipe. In a really famous interview about this piece, René Magritte said this, ah, the famous pipe, how people reproached me for it. And yet, could you stuff my pipe? No, it's just a representation, is it not? So if I had written on my picture, this is a pipe, I'd have been lying. Magritte's point in not just this painting, but in many of his work, if you Google his images, is that art often looks like a thing, but isn't the thing. His whole point is, that is art. Art is a repre representation of a thing, but it isn't the actual thing. Now, René Magritte, you may not know his name, but his sort of approach to surrealist art gave rise to a lot of modern artists, and in particular, street artists like Edgar Mueller, who's famous for painting pieces like this. This is called the crevasse. And Edgar Mueller goes into the streets and he paints these incredible optical illusions. I'll show you the next photo. This is a photo of Edgar Mueller painting the crevasse. It looks like a deep, unending, impoting crevasse in the street. But the image is an illusion. It's not deep, it's flat. What looks like depth is an illusion painted upon a flat surface. This is not a pipe, this is not a crevasse. Which brings us to a story in Matthew 15. Let me read it to you. 
Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem, and they asked him, listen, Jesus, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. This is a verse I quote to my two young children before every meal. Why do you break the tradition of our home? You do not wash your hands before you eat. Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or their mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah, this is an ancient prophet. Chris quoted him earlier. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, the religious leaders. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Interesting and strange. Let's talk about it for a moment. Two times in this story, Jesus pits the command of God or the word of God over and against the tradition. He says, your tradition, the tradition of these religious leaders. So let me give you a bit of context. The religious leaders come to Jesus and they basically say, your disciples are gross. They just like eat food. You know, this is a culture where they would eat food with their hands. They just eat food with their hands without washing them. But this is not about hygiene. That's not the point they're making here. They had a rule, a law, a religious law at the time about the cleansing of hands before you ate. And it wasn't primarily, again, about hygiene. It was a ritual practice, a religious ritual practice. Um, but it wasn't a biblical law. You will not find a law in the scriptures, Old Testament or New, where God says you should wash your hands before you eat. This was instead a new law instituted by the religious leaders of the day as a perceived extension of God's commands in the Bible about something called ritual cleansing. So let me make the distinction. Although the Bible does not have laws about washing your hands before you eat. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, the Bible of the day, and our Bible today, there were lots of laws about what the people called ritual cleansing. Ritual cleansing laws were primarily about acknowledging our sin before God. Chris led us beautifully through some of those thoughts. that We are broken, flawed, what the Bible calls sinful people, that there is bad in us. But God is a holy God. Right? We sing that song, holy, holy, holy. It talks about God being pure. It means that he is totally set apart because God never does wrong. He is totally holy. So for an unholy, broken, flawed, sinful people to approach and interact with a holy, sinless God, something has to give. And ritual cleansing laws were about that. They were a way of acknowledging before God, God, I am a sinner, I'm broken, and I need your grace, I need your love, and acknowledging God's holiness. God, you are pure and holy and never wrong. 
That's ritual cleansing. The heart and the purpose, I'll show you this next slide, the heart and the purpose of ritual cleansing was to acknowledge our sin and to acknowledge God's holiness. And then there were all sorts of ritual practices that were held within that heart and purpose. And even though it's not in the Old Testament, the religious leaders of Jesus' day started instituting all sorts of new ritual practices. And one of them was the cleansing of hands. But these religious leaders had flipped things upside down. They had now prioritized the, the ritual practice over and above the heart and the purpose. So for them, this isn't about, you know, Jesus, are your disciples the sorts of young men who acknowledge their sin and acknowledge God's holiness? That doesn't really matter to them. For them, the thing that really matters is the practice. Jesus, why aren't your disciples washing their hands? They must be sinners. They must be ungodly people. And then in classic Jesus fashion, what does he do? He turns the question around on the religious leaders. But it's, it's kind of weird. He says, okay, well, why do you, religious leaders, why do you break the command of God for your tradition? And then you would naturally think he would address the cleansing of hands, right? But he doesn't. What does he do? He randomly quotes the fifth commandment from the 10 commandments from the story of Exodus. He says, okay, listen, then why do you break the command or the word of God for your tradition? Because the word of God, the command of God says, honor your father and mother. But you all say that if someone devotes their stuff to God, they don't have to use it to honor their father and mother. What is happening? What is this? The Bible, everybody. Very strange, right? A bit of context will be helpful here. At the time... The, the religious leaders of the day, not only had they instituted a new law called ritual cleansing of hands before you eat, they had instituted all sorts of new laws that weren't found in scripture. One of those laws they had instituted was a law called Corbin. And Corbin law in the first century Jewish world was a law, a religious law that's not in the Bible, a religious law that they had instituted that basically said a Jewish person could dedicate their belongings and their property and their money to the Lord. And under Corbin law, if a person dedicated their belongings and their property and their money to God, then that, all of those belongings, all of that property, all of the finances, it could not be used to benefit another human being. It could not be given away as an inheritance. That was Corbin law. But here's the thing, there was a loophole in the law. And the loophole in the law was that the person who owned the property and possessions could still use the property and possessions to benefit themselves while they were alive, but not to benefit anybody else. And when they died, it could not go toward the benefit of others. It had to be given to the temple. This was Corbin Law. And there is lots of evidence that at the time of Jesus, people all over the Jewish world were um, abusing Corbin law by disingenuously dedicating their things to God so that it would not be available to help other people like aging parents. 
And so Jesus, knowing that this sort of abuse of this fake law is running rampant in the day, says what he says. Does this make more sense now? That's what's happening here. So the religious leaders come. They're like, Jesus, your disciples are gross. They don't wash their hands before they eat. You know that our law says you have to wash your hands before they eat. And Jesus says, why do you break the, you're, you're judging my disciples for breaking your laws. Why do you break the law or the command of God himself for your tradition? You tell people that they can dedicate their things to the Lord, and now they don't have to use those things to help family members, including aging parents, at a, at a time in human history when there was nothing like social security. That's what he's saying. One theologian, Michael Green, he says, this was a pious fraud. I love that phrase. A pious fraud which invalidated the will of God as expressed in the fifth commandment. Let's look at Magritte's painting one more time. This is not a pipe. It looks like a pipe, but it's not a pipe. This is not the way of God. It looks like the way of God. It looks like religion. It looks like the pursuit of purity and holiness, and goodness, and love, but it's not. That's what Jesus is saying. And Jesus calls this hypocrisy. He calls this sort of exterior religious practice that looks like a deep love of God and others, but actually isn't on the inside. He calls it hypocrisy. And that word hypocrisy, we know that word. The word hypocrisy comes from a Greek word, which means actor. It literally means somebody who puts a mask in front of their face. That's what he calls this sort of behavior. Hypocrisy. Jesus is essentially saying, listen, stop playing religion. Stop acting religious, just be faithful. Let me confess something to you. One of the hardest things about my life, and this is not a complaint, it's a confession. One of the hardest things about my life is that I am so constantly bombarded by the temptation to play religion. And one of the reasons is because of my job, I have a literal stage upon which I stand. And a semi-captive, I know like 30% of you are thinking about lunch or whatever, but kind of a semi-captive audience on most Sundays, right? And it is really hard for me sometimes, most of the time, to stand up here and live in the tension that is the person I present to you with a microphone on and the person I actually am. Sometimes I'm home with my kids and I am short-tempered with them. And sometimes I am home with Jenny and we get into an argument 
or a fight about something that is so silly and it's most of the time due to my own immaturity and selfishness. And I'm not saying that because I'm like, that's like the good pastoral thing to say. I mean it. I grew up an only child. I grew up with like no one in my home. My mom worked two, three jobs at a time. My life was just my life. My wife is the oldest of four kids. She had mom, dad, and grandparents all living at home. My wife understands what it means to share space and to share a life. I do not. I am utterly selfish and self-centered. And if that version of my life, and it's not a version of my life, it's my actual life. If that life, like if my life was um, a reality TV show, which thank the Lord it is not because it'd be boring and embarrassing. But if it were, and there were camera crews, right, like following me around, the Kims on Hulu or whatever, and we were to show you clips on this screen, you guys, holy smokes, I would be so utterly ashamed on most weeks. Because I'm, I'm genuinely confessing this to you. I am a, I'm a very impatient, short-tempered person. And I am most short-tempered and, and impatient with the people I love the most. Sound familiar? I, I feel like often I'm playing religion. Like I am a religious actor. And sometimes in my worst moments, I, I literally, I have like this out-of-body experience where I hear the words that come out of my mouth sometimes, and it reveals to me the tremendous gap that still exists between my exterior public practice and life and my interior life, what is actually happening in me. And Jesus addresses this in the next few lines. Jesus called the crowd to him and he said, listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them. Let me just address this for a second. Within Jewish religious law at the time, there were all sorts of laws, again, ritual practices um, uh, that were about ritual cleansing, all sorts of laws at the time about what Jews could or could not eat. This is like where we get kosher from. It's religious. And Jesus essentially says, listen, what you eat, what the practice of what you consume, like the stuff, the physicality of it, that's not what defiles you. It's actually what comes out of your mouth that defiles you. The line sounds strange, but let me summarize the point Jesus is making. He's essentially saying, it's not the stuff on the outside that makes you clean or unclean. It is the stuff within you. It's not just your public outward facing life that determines whether you are living a godly life or not. It is the stuff happening inside of you that reveals the truth. In fact, that phrase, out of their mouth, in the original language of the text, it's a euphemism. It was a very common first century euphemism. For, this is kind of gross, but it's the truth. For excrement. This is like the most sobering version of potty mouth. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen to the things that flow out of you in those moments when you are most honest. That will reveal to you your health or lack thereof. That's the point he's making. Now, I just shared, I confessed all of this stuff to you, but I've said this to you before. One of the reasons I love our church 
One of the reasons I feel somewhat comfortable sharing and confessing things like that is because we have a culture here of honesty. So I know that when I share about the gap I feel between my public exterior life and what's really happening on the inside sometimes, I only feel comfortable sharing that because my guess is I'm not alone in this room. And many of us feel that tension as well. And one of the things I have found most helpful is Jesus' point here. At my worst moments, when the stuff inside of me bubbles up and makes its way out into public, I pay attention to that. That reveals what's really happening inside. You know, my kids, I mentioned them earlier, um, they're eight and five. And they're wonderful, I love them, they're the lights of my life. And, and most, like 70% of the time, they play really well together now. But still, about a third of the time, they're at each other's throats. And it's a very common occurrence in my house that one of my children will be, they'll be playing and then one of my children will start crying or whatever, yelling, screaming, and they'll run to me and then um, tell me about some naughty thing that their brother or sister did. And typically some like terrible word they used, you know, like some word they're not supposed to use. And then I will have to sit them down and I'll have to go through the spiel all over again as to like, hey, we don't use those kind of word, kinds of words in our house. We don't talk to each other that way. We don't call each other names, all of those sorts of things. And then typically I will ask them at the end of it, like, do you understand what I'm saying? Do you get this? And they always say like, yes. They've never said like, no, I don't understand, daddy. Not once. They're always like, yeah, I get it, I get it. Right? And then they go on about their day. And lately I've been wondering, like, do they really understand? Like, do they really get it? Because, um, you know, like, for Jenny and I, our, I think about this a lot. I, I try to manage their behavior, and sometimes it's connected to my own insecurity. You know, like yesterday we had this, like, birthday party uh, for my son and a bunch of friends and, and our life group was there and all these kids running around. And whenever we do public things like that, this is just, this is not healthy. I'm just confessing. This is not healthy. Because I'm a pastor, there's this extra ways, like my kids have to be like holy or whatever. And they're so not, you know, they're just like little hellions or whatever. And sometimes I watch them out of the corner of my eye and it's just like, oh my gosh, dude, come on, can you just, and then the pressure is to just modify and manage their behavior. You know what I'm saying? I just want their public outward facing action to fit the part. I want them to be actors. But I, I wonder, like, how destructive is that? Because when I'm really quiet and I just think big picture about my life, my goal is not that my kids say the right things. My primary goal is that my kids become the right sorts of people, yes? And that what they say and how they live and move and act in the world, how they treat one another, that it's all an expression of them becoming day by day the sorts of people God has asked them to be. But often I feel this pressure, like I don't have time to focus on that. I just need them to do the stuff that makes me look like a good dad. I just wonder, like how destructive is that? And sometimes I wonder if I do that because that's me. Because I'm so focused on that. I'm so focused on all of you saying, you know, Jay, Jay's a godly man. It's like, I'm sure, I sure am glad I'm at Westgate Church because our leaders, they're just really 
holy. Listen, I know our staff, they're wonderful men and women who love Jesus. They have problems just like you. They're broken and frail and flawed and sinful just like you and me. If you're part of this church, you don't follow me or our staff. Follow Jesus. We follow Jesus together, right? Human traditions and religious practices, they're wonderful supplements, but they are not the source. Even spiritual practices, which we talk about a lot here, we will talk about more in the coming year, they are the path but not the end. Who we are becoming is of far greater importance than how we behave. Dallas Willard, famous line from Dallas Willard that's been instrumental in my life. The main thing God gets out of your life is not the achievements you accomplish. It's the person you become. Um, Having been a pastor for about 20 years, I've had so many pastoral counseling sessions. And often in those sessions, some version of the line will come out. I'm not a good Christian. I've heard some version of that line Hundreds, maybe thousands of times in the last 20 years. I don't feel like I'm a good Christian. And when I unpack that further, what I really discover the person is actually saying is, I don't feel like I look, sound, or play the part of a good Christian. That's really what's happening. Listen, if you are here and you're uncomfortable in some ways being here because you're not a religious person, Maybe you're here and you're either new to faith or you're, just, you're exploring the idea of faith. You're intrigued by the concept of Jesus, but you're not really sure. And there's a level of discomfort because we're singing these songs and some of the people around me are like really into it and some of them are crying and some of them are like really engaged. Man, those seem like the really good Christians. If that's you, you're uncomfortable I just need you to know, exterior practice doesn't tell you the whole story. It doesn't mean like, you know, people who are like really into the songs are lying. Most of it is genuine. What it means is, what does it matter? Why compare? I'll show you the next slide here. Exterior practice doesn't necessarily equal interior health. Just because a person looks religious on the outside doesn't mean that the person is doing all of the Jesus stuff on the inside. I mean, this is really sad, but how many stories have we had in just the last four or five years of tremendous ministry leaders nationally and globally who um, have taken incredibly difficult and painful and jarring falls from grace because we learned very publicly, sadly, that though on the outside they looked like they were faithfully following Jesus, on the inside, destruction was unfolding. And it's not just like big, famous Christians. This is possible for all of us. But here's the thing. Interior health, the spirit of God forming you into the person he's always called you to be, it always leads to exterior practice. But there's this whole thing called performative religiosity. That's what the religious leaders of Jesus' day were all about, performing religion. Wash your hands, dedicate your things to the Lord, go to the temple, pray like this, sing like that, read your scripture, 
performative religiosity. And here's how performative religiosity works. It is based solely on exterior practices, looking, sounding, and playing the part of religion, and it is fueled by comparison. Do I measure up to the standard of a good Christian? But there's no way to know. Like when you look at the exterior practices of someone else and you ask the question, do I measure up? You don't know if you're looking at the exterior practice prior to the person actually becoming healthy on the inside or if you're looking at it as an expression of their interior health. You do not know. So what is the point of performative religion? What is the point of playing the part of the good Christian, measuring yourself up to the exterior practices of others? What Jesus invites us to, what we are called to, is not faith as performative religion, but actually faith as a formational journey, being changed and transformed day by day into Christ-likeness. It's about who we are becoming and our inner lives being changed and transformed in such a way that our outward expressions reflect the heart of Christ. It begins by becoming aware that my exterior practice, just because I look, sound, and play the part of a good Christian, doesn't mean I'm healthy on the inside. This is a part of why I confess to you. Because God has done a lot of work in my life. I'm not the person I am, uh, I'm not the person today that I was 25 years ago. And I thank God for that. But I still have such a long ways to go. And a part of that, confessing is a way of acknowledging the reality that just because I look the part of a good Christian doesn't mean there isn't so much more that God needs to do in me. And as God does that work in me, you will discover that the development of interior spiritual health will always lead eventually to exterior practice. This is why Paul writes in Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. This is interior work. Focus your internal energy on those things, godly things. And then whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. Interior health becomes practice, exterior practice. And in all of this, the God of peace will be with you. So three practices I wanna invite you to today to focus on, think about. You can pull out your phones and take a photo of this if you like, uh, or you could email us and we will get these sent to you. By the way, you could always email us anytime and we'll send you all of our teaching slides and notes for anybody who wants them ever. First, my encouragement, my invitation to you. This week, less comparison and more self-reflection. Stop comparing your life to the lives of others. Stop comparing what your sort of religiosity on the outside looks like in comparison to others. And instead, self-reflect. What is actually happening on the inside? And as you self-reflect, ask yourself, is there any gap between the person I want others to think I am and the person I actually want to be? This is, I mean, when I was sharing earlier about my own life, this is the tension. There's a temptation for me to want you all to think I am a particular person. But what I really need to focus on is becoming the particular person God wants me to be. 
These two things have to become aligned. And finally, um, very practically, is there any way in which you're simply playing religion? And it's not just to this room, your church family. It might be to the person closest to you. It might be to your spouse. Is there something hidden in the dark? You are sort of protecting the image of a good, healthy marriage. When in reality, you need to confess and bring that thing to light. Or maybe it's true in a friendship or in the workplace. Is there any way in which you are playing religion? I'm going to invite Chris and the team to come back up. We're going to sing and respond. Um, as we do, I'm going to give you a couple of practical resources at the end here. But before I do, I'll share a brief story um, about letting go, loosening the grip of like exterior practice and being religious actors and just sort of playing the part. A couple of years ago, I was um, in the mountains with a group of pastors from around the country. And a mutual friend of ours had gotten us together, and he had gotten us together. These are pastors who were doing incredible work all over the country. I didn't really know what I was doing there. <laughs> I was like, I don't belong in this room. Um, but we're having dinner, and we're just connecting, and there's like five or six of us uh, on the first night or second night, and we're having dinner. And the conversation becomes personal, and we start doing some of this confession work. We start confessing to one another our struggles and the tensions that we're dealing with and all of that. And we're all kind of going around and we're sharing, and um, everybody, including myself, you know, we didn't know each other that well, so we're all doing the sort of like, you know, the Christian-y sort of like, yeah, you know, it's just, it's hard, it's so busy, but, you know, I love the Lord and God is good. We're like, we're talking, now none of that's wrong, none of that's bad, but we're just at that surface level. And then we get to one guy um, who's become a, a dear friend, and we get to him, and we can tell something's different because he's shaking. The rest of us are just like pretty comfortable. It's like, yeah, life is hard, but you know, God is good. We're just doing all that. And then we get to this one pastor, and he's like got tears in his eyes, and he's shaking. He's not speaking, so we just give him room, and then all of a sudden, first words out of his mouth. He says, I'm an alcoholic. And then he starts weeping, and we start weeping. And then he keeps talking and confessing. This is a guy whose work has influenced my life. And at a certain point, he says, not these exact words, he, but he says very close to this, he says some line like, I'm tired of playing religion. I wanna be the real me. And this line he said, I wanna be the real me so the real me can change. That's what he said. And then the whole tenor of that dinner changes. We like do a round two and nobody's like, I'm, I'm tired, but God's good. That, like that doesn't happen anymore. There's no like, you know, I am and then some sort of, you know, temporary adjective. We go around again and that now there's like real, genuine, this is, this is what I am. This is who I am. And I want that to change. This group of pastors stopped playing religion because one man had the courage to be real. Not to say, you know, 
things are all right. It's kind of hard, but, you know, God's good, and I'm good, and we're good, and it's going to be good because God's good, and I'm good, and we're good, and we're going to be good because God's good. He's just like, stop doing that. He's just like nipped it in the bud. He's like, I'm an alcoholic. I have a problem, but God can change that. But he can't change. He doesn't want to change the fake version of me I put out there for you all. He wants to change the real me. So I'm just going to be the real me here. And he's been sober for six months. Now, because he revealed the real him, and God changed the real him. Let's stop playing religion. Let's stop comparing ourselves to each other or one another or Christian influencers on Instagram or whatever. Just stop. Let's stop playing the part and let's be real so that God might really change the real us. Amen? A couple of resources I want to give you. If you're ready to be real, maybe you need care or counseling. Um, if you go to our website, we, have, uh, we try to do our best to really create intimate spaces, not large groups like this, but intimate spaces. We have a great relationship with Christian Counseling Center, um, and we have in-house folks who can come alongside you and counsel you. We offer a mentoring track. Some of you, many of you have begun doing that. This is something new that we just launched where a mentor will meet with you about a specific thing you are going through that they might have some wisdom to lend. Uh, and then life groups, right, life groups. Here's the thing, I told you earlier about like my kids running around and um, you know, our life group is at this party and I'm like, oh, our kids behaving. Here's the reality. I've been with my life group long enough and we've been in environments, like we've shared the same house for three days, my life group with all of our kids. I've been with them long enough to know that all of our kids are a mess. And it is so freeing. You know what I mean? It's so freeing. Like I've seen all of our kids in our life group have meltdowns, which I'm like, oh, it's not just my kids. All the kids have meltdowns, great. Now we can just be free. We can be real with one another. So maybe that's what you need. Maybe you need a group of people that are come alongside you and know you and love you just as you are so that God might then begin to form you just as you are to the person he's called you to. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your incredible grace that breaks into the reality of our lives and not just the flimsy, public, outward-facing version of our lives that we want to present to the world. And we ask that you would give all of us in this room, everyone watching in the theater or online, you would give us the courage today to be real, to stop focusing so much on performing for the world and instead to open ourselves up and invite you, God, by your spirit to change the real us, to really change us, day by day, slowly but surely, to the people you've called us to be. We love you and we thank you. Pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.